scripture, let me ask you please now to pray with me. Father in heaven, um, worship coming to you to recognize, acknowledge your worth means, of course, that we recognize you as the one who is, and that we're in your presence, and thus we've entered your presence, we trust in the way that is pleasing to you, which is through our Lord Jesus Christ, all that he has done, unworthy ones as we are to be in your holy presence, we come in Jesus who is the Holy One, and thus in His righteousness, by His death that brings forgiveness of our sins, we are in Your presence to proclaim Your worthiness. And so even now, Father, we submit our minds to You, our hearts, to listen to that which You have written to us, that we might learn of you, that that our minds would be shaped around this, that we would indeed be transformed by this. We yield to you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to 2 Timothy in chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, I want to read verses 8 through 13. 2 Timothy chapter 2, please. Hear the word of God. Uh, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, throughout the course of this week, I've been thinking about why is it that Paul wrote a second letter to Timothy? You know, already written him one, that seems to be enough, doesn't it? So why a second letter? And it literally dawned on me, sometimes that happens, life sort of dawns on me, wisdom sort of dawns on us. I was sitting in a restaurant uh, this week with a friend, and uh, we began at about 6.30, and it was dark, and by the time we left, it was light, and I realized the morning had dawned, and I just sort of happened. And there you see it, and you didn't realize it was happening, but there you see it. And, and things dawn on us. And, and what dawned on me this week is the reason that Paul wrote the second letter to Timothy is that circumstances had changed. Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus uh, to be the pastor there, this evangelist, to, to, to organize this church and be the pastor of this church in Ephesus. And so he writes him the first letter. We went through that uh, earlier. And, and, and he writes this first letter and, and tells Timothy how the church is to be church and reminds him that the church is the pillar of the living God, uh, the pillar of the truth, if you will, uh, this church of the living God. And, and so he lays out for Timothy how the church is to be and how Timothy is the pastor of the church. Well, things have changed from first letter to second letter. Things have changed in Paul's life. He's now in prison, in prison in Rome. 
as he puts it, as a criminal. So it's a, it's, it's a very um, different kind of imprisonment than perhaps he's had before. It isn't a house imprisonment, but he's imprisoned like a criminal. And you can feel the brutality of that. Circumstances have changed. There seems to be more persecution in the context of the church. Even Paul is now telling Timothy to join him in suffering. In the first letter, it was Timothy, Ephesus is a difficult place. There are false teachers deal with that. In this letter, it's more Timothy. Things have changed and, and the heat's been raised, if you will, to such a degree that now I'm inviting you to join me in the kind of suffering that I'm experiencing. In fact, I want you to, um, to leave uh, this church in Ephesus for a time at least. I want you to leave this church in Ephesus and I want you to come and visit me here while I'm in prison. And that, that increases, if you will, the stakes because we don't know what the persecution may have been in Ephesus. But in Rome, it was severe enough for Paul to be imprisoned, whether this was that time that Nero had imprisoned Christians because he was blaming them, if you will, for the, the burning of the city uh, for which he may have been uh, responsible, at least some suspected. And thus to, to, to get the heat off himself, if you will, he put it on Christians. And was Paul one of those ones who was arrested in that setting? Whatever, the persecution existed in Rome, and so he's calling Timothy now to come and to, to join him there. And, and he knows Timothy. Timothy, uh, by our reading of these passages and these letters, we realize this, it, it seems to be a bit of a timid one, uh, one who doesn't take well to, to confrontation. And so now he's calling Timothy to, to, to come and join him in suffering. And the question then is, in this letter, what can Paul say to Timothy that will motivate him, that will give him the confidence, that will give him the courage in order to step out of Ephesus and go and visit Paul in Rome where he could die? So that's the question. So he reminds Timothy of a number of things. He reminds Timothy of his own faith. He says, this faith is strong. It was first in your grandmother and then your mother and now in you. Uh, he says, you've been given this gift so make sure you use it. You've been called by God and, 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 and the prophecy was spoken about you that you're gifted in order to, to be this pastor, this man of God, if you will, to, 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 to take these steps to do this work. Not only that, Timothy, you've been given a spirit that isn't a spirit of fear, but a spirit of, of power and love and, and really a sound mind. So, so Timothy, you can do this and realize this too, that there's strength that is by the grace of that is in Christ Jesus, that is one who's been united to Christ, there's strength there. The same grace that changed your heart so that you could believe the same grace that was powerful enough to transform you so that you would become a follower of Jesus, the same grace that brought you forgiveness of sins, the same grace that brings you the very righteousness of Christ, the same grace that justifies you, that is, that declares you to be righteous in the presence of God, the same grace that causes you who were once estranged from God to be now adopted into his family, the same grace that it's at work in you to sanctify you, to, 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 to cause you to walk in holiness, the same grace that will one day present you before God in his throne, forgiven and righteous to be glorified and live all your days in his immediate presence. That same grace 
is at work in you now. So be strengthened by it. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So, so he lays this all out to Timothy so that Timothy would have the courage then uh, to come to him and risk it, if you will, to risk it all, even his own life. Now, how is Timothy really to receive that grace, that strength that came through that grace that is in Christ Jesus? Well, notice these words, these openings, this open expression in verse 8, just the first three, at least then the comma. Remember, Paul says, Jesus Christ, remember him. Now you say, you know, Paul's life, or Timothy's life was different than ours. He's a pastor. I'm not a pastor. Well, I can't get out of it. But, but you can. You can say, I'm not a pastor. Timothy was a pastor. So, so why do I really need to, to know what Paul's counsel was to Timothy? I mean, and most of us, I don't know of any of us, who are really facing martyrdom for the sake of Christ, uh, I don't know any of us who are in that situation, so you may want to say, well, why should we even consider this? Why is this important for us now? Well, well the answer to that is that we're all called in, in the same way that Timothy was called to be disciples of Jesus, to be followers of Jesus. And, and while this is a radical call, if you will, on Timothy's life to go into, just to walk into this place of, of, of persecution where there is likely to be suffering for him, and, and again, as we said, perhaps even his, his death, but, 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 but that's what he's facing. That's a radical call. But still, that's just a massaging out of our call. We're all called to follow Jesus, whatever that takes. And so here he is following after the Lord. And, 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 and yet, we know too that suffering, whether we walk into the persecution that Timothy was walking into, but suffering uh, rather hits us all. In various kinds of ways. There, there is that suffering in certain measures that we experience just being part of the world in which we live, a world that doesn't believe as we do, that doesn't value what we value and all of that. And we've discussed that. No need to do that again this morning. But, but just to know, we know that's the case in our lives. There's the suffering that comes because of the indwelling sin within us and the torment that that brings us. We all know that. We don't know our besetting sins. We don't know that. And the struggle that we face that and the difficulties that that brings because of our sin and how that impacts the lives of others. And, and, and we know that. We know the sin of others against us and the pain and suffering and the difficulties that can bring in relationships and otherwise. So we know that. We know, we know even the physical suffering we have from disease and just from, from weakening physical conditions and all of that. We, we know that. We know that in the world. And so the question for us is what can give us the courage even to live this out as disciples of Jesus in the context in which he's called us? Some feeling more radical than others, some looking more radical than others. Timothy certainly more radical than our own at times, but still, what's going to give us that kind of strength in order to continue to live uh, in that way, this kind of weakness? He says, well, here's what will give that to you to remember Jesus Christ. But why would we ever forget him? 
Why would we ever forget? Why would we ever need to be reminded or remember? Why would anybody ever have to come to us and say, remember Jesus? Now remember, this is Timothy that Paul's talking to of all people. Why would he need to say it to Timothy? And I suspect if he needs to say it to Timothy, he needs to say it to us. Because here's Timothy, this very one who, who grew up with a believing grandmother, believing mother in that context. He was one who was discipled, if you will, mentored by Paul, called by Paul. You think of anybody ought to have it down, it ought to be Timothy. He was called to be a pastor. He was gifted, the scriptures say. Prophetic words were spoken about him that he was to be this pastor. And so you think, well, why does he need to be reminded? Well, he just did. And thus, so do we then need to be reminded because there seems to be a certain forgetting what causes us to forgive. I I use a passage I mentioned it just a couple of weeks ago, so I know it's fresh on your minds. I probably don't even have to mention it because it's probably there for you. I'm just teasing. I don't expect you to remember sermons. I don't. Because uh, it's, it's just what we're doing now. It's all right. It's just what we're doing now. Allow it to bless you now. What you need to remember, you'll remember. But anyway, Deuteronomy chapter 8, passage of Scripture. And you're going, yes, and you're nodding your heads. At least, th- th- thank you anyway. Uh, Deuteronomy 8, it's a passage of Moses telling the Israelites about going into the land of promise. And he says, be careful because when you get there and things go well, you'll forget God. You'll actually think you did this. you actually think you're responsible for this. And so we are in great danger generally when things are going well. The New Testament admonition. Be careful if you think you stand lest you fall. That notion. We're in great danger when things are going well. Because we have a tendency to glide and slide and, and not recognize God. And, and if we do, it's still hard sometimes to engage. We go through the motions when things are going well. But sadly for us, that's not our only point of danger. We have a point of danger also when life plays through in a very dramatic ways. Because sometimes we take our eyes off of God and we put our eyes on circumstances. And when we do, they seem so big. We think that we're doomed, that we can't get around those. It happened um, in ancient Israel as examples to us all the time. Psalm 106 is a psalm that lays this out for us, this forgetting of God. And we marvel at it until we look at our own lives. This isn't to be critical of the ancient Israelites. This is just to see how they lived our lives before we got to live them. Uh, And this psalm is about their forgetting of God. For instance, in Psalm 106 and verse 7, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works... They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Now, what's this psalmist mean? He means, well, when they got to the Red Sea, you know that story. When they got to the Red Sea, there was the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army was coming up behind them. And all they could see was the obstacle they couldn't get through and the army that was going to kill them. And they forgot everything at that point about all the plagues and the deliverance of Egypt. And you go, how can you forget that? You know how, right? You know how. The very trauma of life, there it was. And they said, we're doomed. Nothing can save us now, right? And then he goes on to say, verse 13, after the Red Sea was parted and all of that, 
but they soon forgot his works and they didn't wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. That is to say, they were hungry. And they said, all right, now we're going to die because we don't have any food. And they forgot the whole Exodus thing. They forgot the Red Sea thing. And there they were with no food saying, okay, now we're going to die. God fed them. He taught them a bit of a lesson. They got a bit sick. But, 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 but still. In verse 21, they forgot God their Savior had done great things in Egypt and wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. And so you see, that's, that's, that's the issue. It's not just when times are good that we're in danger. It's when times are bad. We're also in danger because we, we forget God. We think, no, everything's doomed. I'm on my own. I can't do this. And, and so Paul's saying, I'm calling you into this situation of radical discipleship where you're going to follow after me. And so what I want you to do, first and foremost, is remember Jesus. You see, that's the ultimate means of grace. We talk about, in our tradition, the means of grace is the word of God and sacraments through which his grace comes to us. Why? Because when we pick up the scripture, when we come to the table, what happens? We think about Jesus. We remember him. Our minds are to be focused upon him. So wherever we are from Genesis to Revelation, we have Jesus in our minds because he's the fulfillment of all that's here, everything in history being summed up in him. And so the ultimate means of grace is this remembering Jesus. And we speak of remembering in the biblical sense. We realize it's a pregnant kind of word, meaning that it doesn't simply mean this mental activity where I recall to mind all the things that are true. But in biblical language, when we remember, we act. When God remembers his covenant, what that means is that he doesn't simply recall it to mind, but then he acts consistent with his promise. When he says he remembers our sin no more, it means then that he doesn't act because he's not remembering. He doesn't act as our sins deserve, you see. Remembering means more than just recalling to mind. So when Paul says to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, he's saying a great deal. He's saying, let your whole life now be informed by that which is true of Jesus. So that you then, through that, be strengthened by the grace that's in him. That's in Christ. Now notice what he says about Jesus. He says, remember Jesus Christ. He tells us two things. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Now I wonder why that. Why doesn't he say, remember the feeding of the 5,000 or the walking on the water? Remember when he made new eyes for this guy? Remember when he raised Lazarus from the dead? Remember the moment of transfiguration? But but he lays this out obviously because, because this is about the very person and work of Jesus. If we remember this, his being raised from the dead, and the fact that he's offspring of David, it tells us first and foremost about his deity and his humanity. In Romans in chapter 1, in verse 1, the apostle puts it like this. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, verse 1, called to be an apostle set apart from the gospel, for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, so this humanity of Jesus, his, his being descended from David 
and his deity that is this one whom death could not hold because he was the very son of God. And so his deity, his humanity. But the deity and humanity of Christ obviously is that which then propels him to do the work to which he's come, to which he came to do uh, as savior, as king. The resurrection, of course, being crucial in all of that because the very resurrection of Jesus which, which, which declares to us that our sins have been forgiven. We've mentioned before, but the dilemma of Martin Luther is he meditated upon the words of Jesus from the cross, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and Luther was perplexed because he wondered, how is it? that the father could forsake Jesus, his son, for his son had done nothing wrong. Why is it that he would be forsaken on the cross? And it dawned literally on Luther. It came to him over some time. And he says, oh, it's because he wasn't being forsaken for his own sin, but it must have been for the sin of someone else. Well, then, whose? And that's when Luther realized, oh my, it was for mine. And so you see, he took our sin upon himself with the wages of sin being death. Then he died and and was forsaken by God. But then he rose. On what basis could he rise? He rose on the basis that he had no sin. Thus, once he had paid for the sins of those for whom he was to pay, once that was paid in full, he was free to go. And so his resurrection, therefore, then declares this victory over sin and thus death. And so he says, think about that, Timothy. Realize that as you're going into this place of suffering, you may lose your life, but not really. Because you'll never die. Because Jesus has already conquered sin and death. And he rose, which means you've received the grace that's in him. You're in him. Thus, you'll rise too. So, so Timothy, all is not lost when you suffer and die. Because Christ has already won that. And so, be strengthened by remembering that Jesus risen from the dead, your sins forgiven, your resurrection guaranteed. So go. And then he said he was a descendant of David. Well, certainly that means that he was human too, and that's of great value to us because he he knows all that we're suffering, all that we're going through as one man, if you will, to another man, Timothy would know that, that Jesus knows my lot, for instance, in Hebrews and chapter 2, we read this, verse 17, therefore, uh, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of, service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of, of the people, again, that's just one of those great sentences, um, He's made like us in every respect so that he might become merciful. Merciful meaning he gets it. He understands. A merciful person is one who empathizes, who sympathizes. Thus, 
helps because I, I know your situation. So a merciful person is one who says, yes, I get it. So I'm moved, I'm compelled to help you. That's what he means. And a faithful high priest is our representative in the service of God to make propitiation, to satisfy the wrath of God for us. Verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So Timothy, if you're tempted not to go, if you're Timothy, uh, Timothy, if you're tempted not to follow this word, Timothy, if you're tempted to shrink back from following Christ, Remember Jesus, he'll help you. He understands that. Timothy, the garden scene of Jesus was real. He knew what it was to face death. Even more deeply, Timothy, than you'll ever know it. He gets it, but he still went. He'll help you. Then chapter 4, verse 14 Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, uh, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So he says, listen, Jesus gets it. He sympathizes with our weakness. He's been tempted like us in every respect. But then he goes on and says, yet without sin. And you say, well, if he hasn't sinned, he doesn't really know me. A, he really does. And B, the blessing of the fact that he was tempted and yet without sin is twofold. First, that he knows temptation way deeper than we do. If you could look on temptation on a scale of when it begins to when we succumb to it, and you look at my life, I'm usually here. In other words, I succumb to it way quicker than I should. Jesus never succumbed to it. He lasted the whole temptation. He knows it to its fullness. So while I may only know about 20% of it because then I give in, he knows the whole enchilada, the whole temptation. And he survived it all. And because he survived it all, he can help us. I can help you a little bit, talk to you a little bit about what it's like to fight temptation and all that. But we're too much alike in that regard. But Jesus is like us in every way, and yet he made it all the way through. So he can take us on, you see. And so Timothy, Paul says, I know I'm calling you to something really difficult. This discipleship to follow after Jesus, but, 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 but remember him. Think about him. He can help you in this. Receive strength from him, this humanity, if you will, of Jesus. But there's one other aspect of this being a descendant of David that we mustn't miss. And the reason he didn't just say he's a descendant of perhaps Adam or a descendant of anybody else or just human. He mentioned David because as a descendant of David, it meant that he was the Messiah, that he was the king. The prophecy was that that there would one who would come who would sit on the throne of David forever and rule and reign. And so he's the descendant of David. He's that descendant of David. He's that descendant of David that the prophet Isaiah spoke of, uh, whose government will be upon his shoulders. 
That he will rule and he'll reign. The very one that the angels prophesied concerning this one who was to come, this Messiah, this Jesus in Luke chapter 1. That he would be that very one who would sit on the throne of David. And so, so what Paul is saying to, to Timothy here is remember, Jesus is ruling and reigning. So he's ruling and reigning over all the suffering, all the persecution, whatever happens in the context of life. And I'm Paul sitting in the midst of it. And I realize that Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. He's the descendant of David. This persecution, this suffering, isn't outside his purview. There's a sense in which he's ordained it to happen. And so we can trust then that it has purpose. And we can trust that it will work out for good. So Timothy, what's your problem? He's ruling and reigning this Christ. Trust him. If he takes you through suffering, it isn't because he can't stop it. So if he takes you through suffering, you know that it was intended by him for you. And good will come. That's the purpose of it. That verse that we quote all the time and sometimes actually even listen to. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We know that God is at work to conform us to the image of Christ, the good that will come. And he says, Timothy, this descendant of David is the sovereign one. And so we can trust him for, in, with our lives. There's something else here too. And that something else here too is that by the very life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we find a pattern of life. So this is true. Suffering to glory. Death to life. John chapter 12, very quickly. Verse 23. Jesus lays this out in principle form and then goes on to live it. And Jesus answered them. Some people had come to Jesus, they'd want to see him. This is right before uh, he meets with his disciples, right before then, the cross days. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, uh, there my servant uh, be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And then in verse 32, Jesus said, when I'm lifted up uh, from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show uh, by what kind of death he was going to die. This principle of life that we must die. That life will come. We must die to our selfishness so that we can live real life. And Jesus said, I must die that you might live 
We all know that there's suffering and sacrifice in the context of life. And that's real life. It brings life not only to ourselves, but to others. Parents know this. We know that we sacrifice, real sacrifice, in love to our children that they might live. But we also know that brings life to us. See, In friendships and relationships and marriage, we all know that. We sacrifice and give, which is even suffering to ourselves, even enduring suffering for ourselves, to ourselves, for the, for the enhancement of the lives of others, that they may live. Paul knew this in the context of his own life. For instance, in verse 10, he says this, therefore I endure everything, back to 2 Timothy, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He says, listen for these elect. That's a whole other sermon, we'll get there. These elect, he said, I'm, I know that they have or will come to faith. That's the meaning of that word. But he says, I'm still willing to give myself for them so that they do. He says, listen, I know they're going to come, but, but I'm willing to risk it all. I'm willing to give it all. Why? Because that's life. Because that's the glory of God. It's real life there. And we know it. John Stott, in a book that uh, should be reading for us all called The Cross of Christ puts it like this. He says, since Paul is suffering for them, he believes that they will derive some benefit from his sufferings. What is this? Well, in the Colossians verse, I didn't read that to you, but he refers to his sufferings as filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. We can be certain that Paul's not attacking any atoning efficacy for his, uh, uh, not attaching any atoning efficacy for his sufferings partly because he knew Christ's attorney work was finished on the cross. That is, when, when, when Paul says, I'm suffering that you may have life, he doesn't mean that my suffering is atoning, sacrificing for your sins, but I'm bringing you this message by way of suffering. He says, what benefit then did Paul think would come to the people through his sufferings? Two of three passages relates sufferings and glory. He says, my sufferings are your glory, he tells them. And again, he says, salvation with eternal glory will be obtained by the elect because of the sufferings Paul is enduring. It sounds outrageous. Does Paul really imagine that his sufferings will obtain their salvation and glory? Yes, he does. Not directly, however, as if his sufferings had saving efficacy, but indirectly because he was suffering for the gospel which they must hear and embrace in order to be saved. Once again, suffering and service were bracketed and the apostles' sufferings were an indispensable link in their chain of salvation. And that is simply life. No one escapes it. The question is, can we have courage to face it? And his answer is, remember Jesus. Now, you remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he met with his disciples. And he commanded them, us, to do something in remembrance of him. And this remembering, he says, if you want to know this grace, you must realize it comes only through me. And thus, 
You must remember me. You must think upon me and think upon me in such a way that it informs your life. Think upon me in such a way that you embrace it, that you believe it. And, and, And that's the grace then that comes. So Jesus took bread after giving thanks. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this too to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds this. He says, now, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. Remembering Jesus Christ. What do we remember? Risen from the dead, descendant of David, this very one who died that he might rise, this very one who in his dying took our sin and in his taking of our sin did it in such a way that we would be forgiven our sins, debt paid. He rose as declaration that debt had been paid. Now remember, don't ever forget, remember that. Allow that to inform your whole life to know that you live in the very presence of God, that you are united to him through Jesus, that your sins are forgiven, that you are declared righteous. That's who you are as a believer in him. Remember Jesus Christ, the strength you see that comes in knowing that strength to know that I belong to him, strength to know that as he rules and reigns as the descendant of David, that he orders my life. Thus what I experience isn't wasted, it's purposeful. Any suffering that comes my way ordained by him has purpose and he will strengthen as we go through it. He will. He says, remember that. Allow that to inform your whole lives. That I died that you may live. That I rule and reign. That you may really be blessed that your life has real meaning. And I will strengthen you through it, in it. Just trust me. So you see, as we come to this table, it's just bread and juice. But, but as we do, Jesus said, I'm here. He said, I'm here. Remember. So help us remember him. I don't know about you, but when I see bread cut up and I smell juice or wine, I think of Jesus. Most especially here. When we see this, we should think, Jesus. And it should inform our very lives. As we see, as we come to this table, it it is a declaration that we believe, no question about that. But it's more than that. There's something here, the very presence of Christ in a way that he's here when we have this table set. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You see, when we find rest for our souls, what we're really finding It's not only that peace that we speak of, but strength to live. 
saying, come to me. Oh, there's nothing magic in the bread and the juice. You can eat and drink this stuff all day long. And it won't help you. But there is help as we come remembering Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, here we are. Trusting you. That you invite us first to your word to listen. And remember you to think of you then. You invite us to this table so sparingly it seems set except that we know you're here. You invite us to it. So Father, we pray that as you've set this table in your son, that your son would meet us here and that we would indeed, remembering him, Find rest for our souls. Set this bread, this juice apart in such a way that we are enabled to remember, to receive from, to live from Jesus. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace of Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be in need of it. All those who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy. We receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners and who desires to live as one who is in fact a follower of Christ when he lives a life of repentance and confession and receiving and living from our Lord Jesus. That that is true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections can come down. Slide to my left, these two down the aisle. To my right, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, eat it. And as you do, remember Jesus. Please come.
He presents our souls to God. And let us sing, though fierce temptation threatens hard to bear us down. For the Lord, our strong salvation, holds in view the conqueror's crown. He washed us with His blood. He washed us with His blood. He washed us with His blood. Soon we'll bring us home to God. wonder grace and justice join and point to mercy's store when through grace in Christ our trust is justice smiles and asks no more he who washed us with his blood washed us with his he who washed us with his blood washed us with his washed us with his blood secured our way to God. Let us praise and join the chorus of the saints enthroned on high. Here they trusted Him before us, now their praises fill the sky. Thou hast washed us with thy blood. Thou hast washed us with thy blood. Thou hast washed us with thy blood. Thou art worthy Lamb of God. 